try to study an idea that I hope will take us to the essence of Hanukkah, make a difference this year. Try to understand exactly what the battle was between us and the Greeks, Greek thinking. More important, what the battle is between us and and their world, which is really which is really where the spiritual battle is pitched right now. You know, the miracle of Hanukkah really was in the interaction between the Jews and the Greeks, the miraculous victory of a, a war that was fought by a handful of yeshiva men, really, picked up weapons for the first time and went out to give their lives, really, in a battle, a seemingly hopeless battle against an empire. That's really what happened. And miraculously, not without uh, immense effort and suffering, it was a war that lasted for many years, 13 years, over 10 years, and with deaths. But despite that, it turned out to be miraculous. Despite the fact that it took extreme effort and uh, protracted fighting and difficulty, but in the end, the Greek Empire was defeated and left the land of Israel and, uh, and, um, and we won. We won the war. We were able to rededicate, re- cleanse the land, as it were, and cleanse the base of Mikdash, the temple, rededicate it, rekindle its lights. The Greeks had not desecrated, the Greeks had not destroyed the temple, they simply desecrated its spirituality. The battle was an ideological one. And that was really the <coughs> the real miracle of Hanukkah when we say Allah Nisim on the miracles we refer to that. We don't refer to the we don't refer to the light, the miraculous burning of a candle, of a flame, an oil flame that burned for eight days when it should only have burned for one. We don't we don't really talk about that. So we understand here why if the real miracle was the victor the victory, this battle that ended in victory of the, the few against the many extremely few against the almost uncounted many a whole empire why is this really commemorated and why is our focus really in a small flame that we light in our window, what does it mean exactly why a flame, what does that mean many questions there are many many mysteries here one of the most basic which is a well known question is the issue of why they fought in the first place why don't we turn to God? Why don't we turn to Hashem? After all, everything comes from the spiritual world. Surely that's the address. <coughs> yeah, when it came to Purim, Purim was a Holocaust decree against the Jewish people. Purim was a time in Jewish history which had happened not that long before, before Hanukkah. If you go back and examine the history, you'll see that Purim had been a decree of destruction against the Jews in a completely... In a Holocaust cataclysmic fashion, there was a decree to wipe out all Jews on one date. All Jews on earth, all Jews on earth then in Purim lived in the same geographical region. Right? The whole known world then, at the time, excluding the Far East, where there weren't any Jews, basically. There still aren't. You know the f- population figures of China today? China's quarter is having one billion people. How many of those citizens are Jewish? Five. <laughs> But but, um, the whole known world, Asia Minor, North Africa, 
what today is Europe. All Jews on earth lived there, and they was all under the dominion of one man, Achashverosh, the king, with Haman as his, as his minister, or sidekick, or prime minister. All Jews on earth came under the jurisdiction, all 127 known uh, countries at the time, states, all fell under the authority of one man. And therefore it was literally in their power to wipe out all Jews. Not like other, other types of Holocaust where there have been remnants of Jews in other places. Here they weren't. And there was a decree to kill all Jews on one day. And the response of the Jewish people was not military at all. Not at all. They sat down and fasted. They fasted for three days. They, they, they rent their clothing. They prayed. They, they cried out to Hashem. And as it happened, they were, they were saved. So if the correct address is... If that's the correct address, why on Hanukkah did when the Jews were not even threatened with destruction? They weren't even threatened with destruction. The threat of Hanukkah was ideological. That's all the Greeks decreed. Death would come to the Jews if they failed to observe the decrees. But the decrees were religious. Not to keep Rosh Chodesh, and not circumcise their children, and not to learn Torah. Mitzvahs. So the Jews are threatened by not being allowed to perform mitzvahs. They pick up weapons. In a completely hopeless battle against the whole empire, they go out to fight. This is very perplexing. Why did the Jewish leaders of the time, why was the Torah Torah sages of the time, why did they instruct the Jewish people at Purim when they were threatened physically to sit down and pray, deal with it spiritually, and at Hanukkah when they were threatened spiritually to deal with it physically, pick up weapons. But of course it's central. This is an issue. Jewish history doesn't, there's no accidents, of course, in in Jewish history, and there are no accidents in the guidance of the sages, obviously. That's exactly the point. Everything is in the hands of heaven, except your spirituality. Everything is in Hashem's hands. Nothing moves here. Not a flicker of a movement, not the subtlest movement here in this world takes place without His being the immediate cause. There's only one thing that He doesn't cause, that He doesn't touch. That's your spirituality. Everything in the hands of heaven. Your fear of heaven means your, your relationship with Him. That's the only area you have any say. The only place you can have anything to do. And therefore the, the response is logical. When the de- decree of destruction is promulgated against the Jews, that this empire is going to wipe out all living Jews on one day, everything is in the hands of heaven. There's no other place to turn. Picking up weapons is ridiculous. If everything's in the hands of heaven, right? no matter what you do, no matter what weapons, let be, be they swords or be they nuclear armaments, aren't going to make any difference if he's decreed otherwise. And therefore the only hope you have is get him to change his decree. So they sat down and prayed. And it worked. But when the threat isn't against Jews, the threat is against the Jewish spirit, against ideology, that's against Yeroshamayim, against you, your relationship with him, that's the only thing that's in your hands. Pick up weapons, go and fight for it. <coughs> what are you turning to him for? You, can't, you don't turn to him when you want to be spiritually developed. You do that as well. You need that as well. You need help as well. But the primary methodology of growing spiritually is you. And ultimately it's him too. But the, the means, let's say, is your own work. And therefore, that's what you have to fight for. You don't fight. Again, our mentality is so non-Jewish. Our mentality is so non-Jewish that our tendency, unfortunately, in this generation, that's because we're Greeks. That's because we're Greeks. Judaism is Greek to us. We think that when we fought, when somebody threatens us physically, let's go and fight them physically. They threaten us spiritually, let's deal with it, let's, let's pray, because it's spiritual. Not like that at all. When they threaten us physically, you have to turn to the one who controls human politics and history. But when they threaten us spiritually, you pick up weapons. Whether, they, whether you can manage the fight or not, not the point. That's, where you, that's what, with which you're entrusted. 
The main point we want to draw out of this for this evening's discussion is that the battle with the Greeks was a spiritual battle. The fact that we fought it physically was our response. It's true. But the battle is a spiritual one. What they wanted to extinguish was that candle, that light, which is the Jewish spirit. They weren't interested in destroying Jewish bodies. They weren't interested in destroying the physicality. They were to destroy the temple. All they wanted was to make it Greek. Then it should have a... And of course the real Greek problem is the Greeks among the Jews. Right? There's no... <coughs> That's where the real ideological battle is fought. The real battle is with us and our inner enemies. And it's no less painful today than it ever was, of course. Very painful messages here. As, as Rabutna used to point out, during the Babylonian exile, they weren't, they weren't, you know, the expression of Hellenic Jews, Jews who became Hellenized, we call Mityavnim, Jews who became Greek in their outlook, and uh, assimilationists, uh, people who wanted to take on the Greek culture, go and strip their bodies naked and demonstrate them in the, in the games, try to undo their circumcisions for the purpose, get into Greek culture, Greek philosophy, Greek culture. Mityavnim it's called. In the Babylonian exile there were no mitbavlim, there were no Jews who tried to be Babylonian. In the Roman exile, you know, in, in the Persian exile there weren't Jews who made an ideological business of becoming Persian in their philosophy. In Greece that was the problem. In Greece the Jews became, the problem was Jews who became Greek in their outlook. The battle was in the, the battlefield is the Jewish mind. The essential battlefield is the Jewish mind and the Jewish spirit. And that's the problem. That's the problem. That's where all battles have to be. That's where our battle really is. <coughs> our battle really is in your, the private space of your own mind. That's where, that's where the real battle is. Part of the problem of today's generation is that what Greece gave as a legacy to Rome, which is where we live today, we're in the fourth exile. Our exile today is Rome. How the Arab peoples fit in needs to be discussed also. How they attach themselves to the fourth exile. That recalls them the, the, the Talmudim, I recall it the fifth exile, which is our problem today, is the, is the Muslim conflict. It's the world's problem, it's not our problem. It's the world's problem. That needs to be discussed. Perhaps we have time to do mm-hmm. that, find an opportunity. But our, our problem today, the general, the general setup, is that we're in the fourth of four exiles, which is the Roman exile. The Roman exile is not a spiritual threat to us. Its, its, its content is Greek. Its content is Greece. Rome, what Rome brought to the world, what Rome enforced by might, and still rules today, rules the world. The, whole, the, the beauty and the appeal and the intellect of Rome was really Greece. The, the Romans didn't have their own, there was no Roman philosophy. The Romans didn't bring to the world, it's important to know, the Romans didn't bring to the world a philosophical approach. The Romans brought to the world the, 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 the application of might and power to rule, yeah, to, to spread themselves across the, the face of the, of the West and rule the world. But the culture that they imposed, that they espoused and that they adopted and that they imposed on the world was Greek culture. The Greeks were essentially a culture. Roman culture today, that means if you've tried to examine Western society today for its own values, there's really nothing. One, one thinker said that examining Western culture today for its ideological centers like peeling an onion. It's like peeling an onion. You peel an onion looking for the, looking for the substance. You peel out one layer and another layer and another layer. You keep peeling an onion. All you left was the tears in the eyes. <laughs> and that's why one of the essential lacks of, of mod, in modern society is that 
Greek philosophy brought to the world an identity. That means there was, a, there was an intellect, there was a dais, there was a mind. And it was so powerful that it swept away Jewish minds. It was a genuine appeal. It was not a superficial or frivolous thing. Today there's, there's, no, today there's no sense of powerful identity. There's no real individuality. That means today the, the I, the, the big I, that means the I who is able to live independently and alone. You know, our sources say that in the next world the soul will be alone. You'll be alone in the next world. Essentially alone. You have to get used to it and like it. Part of the, the essential spiritual training of life is to learn to be self-sufficient spiritually and mentally because in the next world it's a very lonely experience. It means it's to be examined alone and to be tested alone and to exist alone. There's other layers too, of course, where we all bond into one. It's a complicated discussion. But today part of Western society is You know, when the Greeks brought their philosophical issue to the world, the problem to the world, we call it darkening the world. We call it darkening the world. That's where we light the light. But we call it darkening the world, right? It's called Choshek Zayavon. The, the verse in, in Chumash, at the very beginning of the Chumash, says, The world was void and chaotic. And darkness on the face of the deep. And there's a verse that describes the chaotic formlessness in which the world began. And the Maral is famous there. Much earlier sources talk about these four words of <laughs> chaos and void representing the four exiles. The third of them, Yavon, corresponds to the word darkness. And as we say, the, the Greeks darkened our eyes with their decrees. Stretched out their hands to, to Jewish possessions and Jewish women and darkened our eyes with their decrees. Greek, Greece is called darkness. And it's Important to know, the, f- the fear of darkness. People are afraid in the dark. People are afraid in the dark at night. Night time is a time of natural fear. But I understand this deeply. It's not because, what is the fear of the night? Real, real night. Today there is no night. Today we live in environments where the, light is, the night is made light like the day. Today there's no difference between night and day. But if you ever lived in the bush, if you've lived in the, in the wilderness... And, and genuine night sets in when there's no light at all. It's a very powerful experience. It's a completely different mode of existence. And it, it encourages, it builds natural fear. There's a natural, there's a natural fear in the darkness. It's not because you think that somebody's going to attack you and you won't see them, or because some going to be uh, spirits dancing and, you know. The essential fear of the nighttime is that in the real darkness you're really alone. You're really alone. In the day, there's a combination. That means there's a relationship with, with the world around. But in the darkness, in the darkness, there's nothing. In real darkness. And the real fear is fear of being alone. <coughs> of being completely alone. And a completely developed spiritual being does not feel the fear of being alone. On the contrary, he feels tremendous thrill of being alone. But the natural mode is, a fear, is, a, is, is an experience of fear. And that's Greece brought a philosophy to the world that extinguished that. And today in Western culture, there's no... <coughs> there's a tremendous fear of being alone because there's no one to be with. <coughs> the first part of the battle against Greece is elevating the dice. That means there has to be... there has to be a genuine persona, a genuine personality at home. Some, there has to be a thinker before the thoughts. And we live in a world that dissipates that all the time. Even the Western concept of meditation, which is supposed to be essentially an alone experience of developing the mind, even the way the Westerners grasp meditation is, is, 
is a form of mindlessness or relaxation. And that's not the meaning of meditation. Genuine meditation is an expanding of the dice. It's not a, it's not a state of being without <coughs> consciousness. That may be restful, but it's not meditation. <coughs> meditation doesn't mean switching off the mind. The classic mistake of the Westerner who studies meditation is that he or she thinks it's a switching off of the mind. Meditation is a switching on of the mind. It's a switching off of the external mind. It's a switching off of the mind that is dissipated into externality so that the inner mind flourishes. It's a very, very deeply aware state. We're supposed to do it three times a day at least. What we're supposed to be doing. Let's see if we can try and think this through slowly, one step at a time. See if we can find a direction here. So the way, we, the way we celebrate, the way we commemorate, the way we, we designate that miracle and that phase and, and the victory in that battle, we light a candle, we light a light. Classically and ideally it should be an oil, oil light with a wick that draws the oil. That's called a nair. Nair Hanukkah. Nair Hanukkah, the light of, the light of Hanukkah. Nair. <coughs> the word nair, let's try and see... So, share together what some of the deeper sources say about this. So that this year when you look at those lights you see something deeper. The, 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 the mystical sources say you can learn a tremendous amount mystically by studying a candle flame. By studying that flame. So let's see if we can put a little bit of the learning into, into gear behind that study so that it will be a little bit more meaningful. Now the word ner in Hebrew, those of us who have been together for the last period of time know that we always look at the word itself. The word ner in Hebrew adds up to 250. <coughs> the gematria, the numerical equivalent of the word ner, meaning a candle, it adds up to 250. That number happens to be the equivalent of a number of things. <coughs> One of them, this is a very deep Kabbalistic ideas, most of which probably off limits to, my, to most of us, but let's try and grasp at least the fringes or the edge of, of what we can. You know, the parts of the body are 248. The 248 parts of the body. Which means that bodily we lack two elements that make the flame ignite. It means our bodies, our bodies are just too short, two elements short of the, that flame. And in deep sources it's written that the human body, together with two elements, what we call Ava and Yira, the two modes of relationship with Hashem, love and fear, Right? Or the first and second of the Ten Commandments, if you like. Which really subsume them all. That is the root of the 250. Huh? It's no accident that the 248 parts of the body, 248 earth, earthly parts of the body, the same number is the Hebrew word rechem, the womb. The womb. That means the crucible in which that body is formed has the same numerical equivalent. And of course, it's no accident that the word Avraham has the same numerical value. Abraham. Avraham Avinu. That means the womb in whom the Jewish people, as it were, is formed. That father figure. <coughs> that point of origin. His name. That means that Avraham Avinu, he, as a man, together with the elements that he brings to the world, <coughs> the two modes of connecting with the spiritual world. He is the nair of the world. He is the light of the world. That's why it says, Eile told us these are the generations of the creation of heaven and earth, in their being created. In their being created. The word is the same letters as 
Which means, the simple translation is, in their being created, in the, in the, uh, in their coming to existence, the world's coming into existence from nothing. Which incidentally, and not incidentally, is what the Greeks denied. The Greeks said the world had always been, the primordial material of the world had always been here. And we said it was never, it was not here before. Fundamental aspect of Jewish faith, Jewish belief, Jewish knowledge, is that there was nothing before the world was created out of nothing, of no manifest thing. That word is Bahibaram in their being created, Abraham. He is the person who is, on his shoulders, the world rests. The world rests on his shoulders. The Greeks understood that the world rests on the shoulder of a man. They're right, 100% right. They got his name wrong. But there's a man on whose shoulders the world stands. No question about that. But it's on a man with two elements in his mind, which are the two modes of his relationship with Hashem, the positive and negative modes of interaction. Love and fear. That adds up to the word ner, which means a, the flame, the candle flame. The human soul is that flame. The word nefesh in Hebrew, the word nefesh, which means the soul, the, the word nefesh, which is the fifth part of the soul, the lowest of five parts of the soul, the part of the soul that connects with the body. The upper parts are all attached to it as it is attached to the body. That, that, that level called nefesh, which is the human soul's attachment to the body, those letters, the letters of nefesh, spell til shemin. The three elements of, a ca- of, a, of an oil flame. The three elements of an oil lamp, of an oil flame, are ner, the flame, till the wick, shem, and the oil. Those three elements, right, are the elements of the word nefesh. Amazing thing. The human soul, the nefesh, but which part? The part that attaches to the body. Can you hear what's happening? What is a flame? What is an oil flame? That's a physical thing, a wick. Understand this deeply. That's a physical thing which is a wick, which dips into a medium called oil, called shaman, and it draws the oil in such a way that it doesn't burn. It provides the medium, the human body is the channel or the medium. The human body is the channel or the medium that connects to the spiritual world. Ideally, nothing burns. That means in correct spiritual attainment, a person who reaches the correct level spiritually, nothing burns. Burning means, flame, fire means, that the, that the medium becomes part of the fire. Fire means that that which burns becomes itself fire. It's a bonding into oneness in fire. But in the lower world, it destroys the substrate. In the higher world, the fire doesn't destroy the substrate. That means it burns, attaches itself and burns, and nothing's consumed. You know, the, the Torah is that fire. Torah is called Orisa, which means fire. The Torah begins on Sinai, but not at the giving of the Torah at Sinai, but long before when Moshe Rabbeinu Moses stands on Sinai, He's, he's herding his sheep, and he sees a bush, a bush burning. But it's burning and not consumed. So he walks over to see what it is, and he sees that the, the snare, the bush, is burning, but it's not being absorbed, not being, con- it's not being <coughs> consumed. Right? The, the, it burns, but it's not destroyed. And Hashem says to him, on this mountain you'll serve me, meaning the Torah will be given on this mountain. <coughs> what you're seeing now is a premonition of the flame that will be the flame of Torah, that will be given at Sinai, it will be here on this mountain. And the message that he gets, that, is the, that presages the whole process of, of exit from Egypt, and standing at a place where a fire comes down, which is the fire that, that ignites and burns and makes the components fire, and doesn't destroy them. But Torah, that's Torah. Torah means you bond, correct understanding of Torah in its depth, means that the human being, 
all aspects of the human being, ultimately even the body, become one with Hashem and are not consumed. That means there's an identity that is there, not, does, not, does not dissipate. <coughs> the paradox of Torah learning and character building is that there's a sacrifice of ego, a disappearance of the personality, of the, of the individuality, and the paradox is that there's a, the result is a swelling of individual, of individual existence and, and consciousness. Not on the contrary, the substrate's not destroyed. It, it is more intact than it was before. Is there any accident that many centuries later, when there's a rededication of the Beis Hamikdash and the fire of Torah, Torah is reignited in the face of the oral law, the miracle is an oil that's not consumed. The miracle, I think it's an accident. The first time that happened to the Jewish people was a bush burning where the, where the material that burns is not consumed. And the last time it ever happened to us was when the Hashemunayim entered the temple and they relit a candle, a, light, a flame, which burned for many days without consuming what it burns. And it couldn't be a clearer connection of first phase to second phase. So, let's try and take it further. Let's try and think this through further. The truth is that the deeper sources say that the word ner, which adds up to 250, is the numerical equivalent of three Kabbalistic, three divine names, or combinations of divine names. There are three, I'm not sure that this is your particular interest, but it should be. There are three versions in, in, in the deeper thinking of the names, of divine names, names of Hashem in the higher world, that, that form a unit. And these names are <coughs> the name Ekia, which means I shall be together with the, the Yudke Vavke. The name Elohim, which is another aspect of the divine name, together with the Shem Ayatsem and Shem Adnus, which is Aleph, Dalit, Nun, and a Yud. The, the, that, that name, together with the Yudke Vavke. Those those three combinations together add up to the same as Nair. What does this mean? What does this mean? The first of those names, really, in the, in the deeper, deeper understanding, is a name that indicates source. It is a coming down from, an, from a completely ungraspable, ineffable source and manifesting that way. The next level is the level that, that is that divine existence or intensity coming into the world and actually infusing the world with its reality. And the third is the one that connects those two. But the message here is that the higher name, the point of origin, that name, is really the ability, this is hard for us to grasp, but it's the ability for that which is manifest in the world to be also connected to, that means also manifestation of the divine name. If we would put this in our clumsy way, in, 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 in our language, we would say that when there's a communication of the source, when there's a shining out from the source to the external world, there are two ways that can happen. I can communicate with you in two ways. I can either communicate with you through a medium, I can just send you a message. That's what the Ramchal calls a manifestation, that is Heske Me, calls it. In English, the best word we can use for something that's by Heske, we would say it is it's by convention. We would say it's by, it's by um, probably the right English word would be, it is a, uh, yes, it, 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 it's, it's by common, common agreement. It means that you know what the word means, because we've agreed. When I name an object in English, the word, the word d doesn't mean anything. It could have been any other word. But because you've been taught that when I say that word, it means this thing, so, so when I name the thing, and I use the word that names it, you understand what I mean. But there's nothing in the name. You could have been brought up to use another word, and it would have been just as good. 
That's called heskemi. That means it's, it's by convention. We've agreed by convention that this word means this thing. But there's another way to communicate, and that's to say the thing itself. I can communicate with you by sending you a letter. I can send you a telegram. I can send you some message. What does the message do? It tells you something of the source that I wish to convey. But a much deeper way of communicating is when I give myself to you. The real communication, the real projection of one thing into another is not where it sends a distant message. That could have been some other message. It is where an emanation of the thing itself is experienced. And the mystery of the world is not that it's, an agree- it's not by a convention or by agreement telling us about a source. It could have been this way, it could have been another way. The mystery is that the world has the ability to communicate the source itself, if you know how to look. That's what those names mean. What does this have to do with a nair, with a, with a flame? But that's the concept. The concept of a flame is that there's a material interface here, there's a material object, material system, a physical system, which draws another medium and gives it to be flame. And that's the mystery of the world. The mystery of the world is this thing called nefesh. Nefesh means that there's a, there's a spirit. The spirit means that there's a human body. And that body is the, is the wick, if you like, that, 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 that connects something deeper with something higher. Shemen in Hebrew, which means oil, which is this medium. Shemen means that which is more. In Hebrew, shemen means more. In English, oil means oil. In Hebrew, shemen means more. Shemen means <laughs> it means beyond, yeah, beyond the mere, beyond the limited proportions. Right? Shamanta. Right? That which expands beyond the. You know, shemen, which means beyond the minimum, is also eight in Hebrew. Shemen, yeah is Shmone. Shmone in Hebrew is 8. What does 8 have to do with this? 8 is always that which goes beyond the natural. 8 is always that which is miraculous. Because ultimately we're not only talking about a spiritual connection with the physical, we're talking about a miraculous spiritual connection with the physical. That's where it can go. We don't see that today. We don't see those types of miracles. But the clearest indication of a connection between this world and another is called a nace. A nace means a banner uplifted. And when you see clearly, you see something clearly, that's inherent in the number eight. Because the natural world is built of seven. The natural world is built of seven. The seven elements of the world, the seven notes in the scale that we use conventionally in our music, the seven colors in the spectrum. There's a natural phenomenon in the seven colors. It's not an arbitrary perception of human beings. There are seven colors in the spectrum. The reason you're not supposed to look at a rainbow excessively, you shouldn't look at a rainbow too much. It's not good. It's not good to look at a rainbow. To make a bracha when you see it. The rainbow is a reminder of the curse, yeah, of, the, of the bracha, the, the, the promise, let's say, the covenant that Hashem made with the world that He would never destroy it again. But when He shows you that covenant, He's reminding you, He's showing you that He needs to rely on the covenant. When you see a rainbow, it's a sign that the world's not in a good state. Definitely, during, during the best times of history, there were no rainbows. It's a sign that the world now stands on the verge of destruction and it's only the promise that keeps it going. So one doesn't look at it excessively. What's wrong with a rainbow? And all its beauty? So the Malbim explains that a rainbow is the breakdown into seven colors of a light that is essentially one. White light, remarkable mystery that. The world is created by a light. The rise of the light of Torah is this. 
it is a one it is one light it's it's light but it can be refracted it can be diffracted into its into its colors can be separated into its colors when you see the colors the beauty the amazing thing is the beauty of the world is in all its multiplicity but 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 that's perceived because of the breakdown of oneness for all its beauty, we want Jewish, the Jewish mind takes the multiplicity back to oneness. That's what we do. We don't take the oneness of the world into its broken down. We want to take the broken down bits and pieces of the world back to their oneness. That's the, that's the key. That's the clue in a rainbow. Is that the oneness of the world is threatened. It manifests in its... But the natural world, when you see the breakdown, the existence of the natural world has seven elements. Eight is always beyond that. Eight is where you spend... <coughs> You know, four, the, the, the minimal expansion of the world in, in our experience is four. In the Maral's terms, four is always the expanse of the natural world. Right? What we call the plane. The plane surface of the world that we walk is two-dimensional. Two-dimensional is really four elements, right? It's right, left, and front, back. The four elements of the physical limited world, that's called, that's called poverty in Hebrew. Dal, you know, dalit, dalit meaning four in Hebrew, which indicates, by the way, the two, a dalit is two right-angled lines, that's all it is. A dalit is a line this way and a line that way. That is two dimensions. <coughs> the letters, not only, not only do they say it, they actually show it to you graphically. Because letters are graphic representations. So a dalit in Hebrew is two lines at right angles. That's all it is. And that means poverty. Dalut in Hebrew means having nothing. Because that's what physicality is. When you expand physicality and you put in a spiritual element, you get a hay. What is a hay in Hebrew? Five. How do you draw a hay? You put two lines this way at right angles, and then you put another line at right angles to the plane. You see just a dot. So a hey is a graphic representation of three dimensions. And that's why five in Hebrew is already an elevation from physicality to spirituality. Eile told us, these are the generations of the creation of heaven and earth. Behibaram, in their being created, language, Abraham, strictly speaking, Bra'am. With five he created the, the worlds, Am. Which worlds? This and the next. When there's a connection between this world and the higher world, when there's, a, when there's an up-down dimension, when there's a depth to the, to the dimensions, the beginning of touching into a world that transcends. That's called five. And therefore the word chamisha in Hebrew rearranges to simcha. The letters of chamisha spell simcha. What is simcha? What is joy? Joy is the feeling of expansion of consciousness when something happens that's beyond the limited and finite. What is beyond five in Hebrew? That was four. Five. What's next? Six. Six is where you have the fullness of physicality. The fullness. You're all, six is really the fullness of three dimensions. Right? Both polarities of all three dimensions. You have a six to express any real object that can really exist in space. The only, only kind that we have in our world. It needs six sides. And therefore, six in Hebrew is sheish, which is sas. Sason is, much, is higher than simcha. Simcha is an expansion of joy. Sasson is when the joy expands, it's called Sasson. What is the seventh? When all six of these express something more than the sum of their parts. When there's a, a unity between these six things, that, that's called Shabbos. That's called Shabbos, the seventh. Right? What is seven in Hebrew? Shiva, the word spells, Svi'a, means completely full. Completely full. Be in Hebrew means to be full. Sovea, meaning fullness, the sense of complete satiety and fullness, that is Shabbat, that's the same as seven. What happens when you go beyond the natural, the fullness, complete fullness of the week, with the six natural days and Shabbos, the connection to spirituality? You get to Shemona, you get to eight, which means Shemain. It's now expanded beyond the fullness of the natural. Right? That's why eight is always that which goes beyond. That's why there are only seven elements in the natural world. Eight is always that which is miraculous.
Bris Miller's on the eighth day, taking the body in its ultimate physicality and enabling it to transcend. That's a circumcision, that's what it is. And the miracle of Hanukkah is no accident that it's eight days, and what gives it existence is the oil, which is Shemin, which is eight. What was the oil they found? What was the oil that they found in the Basamekdash? Shemana Mishra. You know what that is? The anointing oil. What is anointing oil? Oil that's put on top of the form. Where does the oil go? With the Kayan Godel, with the Mashiach. You know what Mashiach means? Anointed with oil. That's what his name means. Because oil is the transcendent dimension, is the eighth thing, and it goes above the seven elements of physicality. It's in the place of the crown, which is the transcendent source. Of course it continues, there's more beyond this as well. The miraculous world has its own expansion. Nine is, a, nine is another whole discussion. Tesha in Hebrew, Shah means to turn towards. To, 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 to turn to move towards complete and full. The tenth in Hebrew, Eser, is Ashir. Rich, that means richness. It's not just having more than the minimum physicality. It means having enough to give. But we focus this evening on eight, which is where the natural world transcends. That's what Shemin is. So the word Shmona in Hebrew means eight. Right? That which is beyond the natural. And of course, if you rearrange the word Shmona in Hebrew, you get Neshama. Same letters. The same letters that spell eight, meaning the transcendence, the oil that burns, that connects the physicality with that which is above. The same word is Neshama, which is the spirit itself, the high level of spirit, above Nefesh. <coughs> of course, I presume that your minds are you're not sitting there passively, your minds are working ahead of me, right? If you rearrange Neshama and Shmone again, you get the word Mishnah. The Mishnah, the same letters. Because the Mishnah is the repository of the oral law, right? Which is where Torah yeah, becomes the written law, transmits itself throughout history, and when it finally reaches its, its, its last ebb, yeah, when, the, when the prophets finally leave the world, at that point, what happens next is Hanukkah. What is Hanukkah? It's the Chag, the Yom, the celebration of the oral law. Right? The Mishnah coming to its own with the sages of the Mishnah. The central sage of the Mishnah is Rabbi Akiva, right? Same name as Yaakov, with an added Aleph. Right? Who goes back to the Rabbi Akiva. That name is the same numerical equivalent as the word Mishnah. Right? The Gematria of Mishnah, Rabbi Akiva. Who is the central sage of the oral law. The only one who entered the orchard normally and came out normally. Right? All three others couldn't survive and they entered that deeper zone. One, one became a heretic. Lisha ben Avur. Ben Zoma lost his mind. Ben Azai died. Only Rabbi Kiva managed to do what he had to do there and come out in that higher world. <coughs> Not a simple matter to take a man of the stature of Rabbi Elisha ben Abu, one of the Tanaim equivalent of Rabbi Akiva, and make him become a denier. Do you know what that means? Do you know what the forces were that they must have been dealing with? To make a man, take a man like Ben Zoma, who was capable of entering that world and make him become insane. Do you know what? Rabbi Akiva was able to do that. Go in there and do what he had to do and come out. <coughs> but that's the oral law. That's the power of the sages, the oral law. That's what Hanukkah is. It's lighting the flame that brings together the phase of history that is the written law and attaching it. This is a sensitive attaching of a wick that draws the oil, that transcends. That is what the flame is. And that's the secret and the mystery of life. And that's the essentially Jewish view of the world. Is that 
There's a physical substrate here. There's a body. There's nothing more physical than the body with all its lowliness and all its natural tendencies to be unclean and, and all its finite flesh. And that is a wick that connects to it to an infinite, allows an infinite light to be to be manifest. It's beyond beyond description that miracle. Having spiritual beings that are naturally spiritual, whose vessel is spiritual, is not. That's called angels. They know. They know wonder. They are no wonder. And having beings that are physical beings that inhabit the physical earth is no wonder either. But having a being that inhabits the physical earth, whose body is so animalistic that the, that a whole generation of mankind can believe that he is only an animal, that he is nothing more than an animal. And that substrate that you look at, and they make the mistake of thinking that is an accidental animal. Uh, is that wick which enables a divine flame to... And that's what the Greeks did. The Greeks came to the world and they said, there's no connection here. There's no connection. This body is a body. Nothing reflects anything higher. The beauty, be- beauty in the world reflects only its own intrinsic beauty. The motto they brought to the world was art for art's sake. Art for art's sake. In the West, that's the highest value. Is art for no ulterior motive. That's the pure... There's nothing lower in Jewish thinking than that. Because the beauty of the body and all the, all the depth of physicality, we see expressing, we see it igniting into a flame. We see its beauty, but, but expressing its spiritual core. And the Greeks came to teach the world that the beauty of the world itself, and their world is beauty. Greek, Greece is Yephes, it means beauty. It's aesthetic beauty, intellectual beauty. That's exactly what they contribute to the world. And the correct place of that is Baal shame. That means in the tents of, of the Jewish people is where that beauty belongs. Because it, that is the correct ideal. The correct ideal is that the vessel needs to be beautiful in order to express its contents. But the Greeks came and said the vessel needs to be beautiful because it has intrinsic beauty. But not only do they say that, they elevated that to an ideal. And therefore the body needs to be exposed because it's its own, it's, 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 it is its own value. When the daughter of Caesar met Rabbi Shobin Hananiah, Right, who was, the, who was, who was uh, ugly to the point of being misshapen. Right? He was one of the greatest sages of his day. Meshur ben Hanani, we're talking about in the Roman times, after Greece already passed on to Rome its legacy. One of the greatest sages who ever lived, the greatest sage of his generation, who was, who was ugly to, to, an, to an extreme. When this Roman woman, great Roman woman, met him, and the Talmud doesn't quote the words of fools and empty people. So her claim here... Has, has tremendous depth. She said to him, how can such incredible wisdom exist in such an ugly vessel? How can there be such incredible wisdom, but clear, in such an ugly vessel? The man was... This was a man when he was a baby. His mother wheeled his, his baby carriage. She wheeled him into the basement. She used to leave him there that his ears should be formed by the sounds of Torah. Right? That, that is, the ears are always the... The ears are the place that are the totality of the being. I have to discuss that still, but that his ears that into his consciousness should be his con- his, he should be formed and the Mishnah says about him Ashray Yolodata happy is the one who gave birth to such a person this great sage but his physicality was tremendously tremendously beaten tremendously ugly when she met this great sage whose fame was <coughs> legendary she said how can there be such he was perplexed how can there be such incredible wisdom in such an ugly body <coughs> you have to understand here who's asking this question who's asking this question is, a, is First of all, a woman. 
Because a woman is the place of beauty. A woman is where beauty is. What a woman brings to the world. The Gemara says, Ein isha ala noi. The woman, A woman is the... That's where beauty resides. That's what a woman is. That's what a woman's modesty is. Is to transmit her beauty as a spiritual thing. It's very easy for a woman to transmit her beauty as, as an animal thing. And of course that's the legacy of Greece. That's exactly what it is. On every billboard and every bus stop and every poster and every page of every... And that the feminists don't get upset with. That, that they tolerate. That they tolerate. Woman is the place of beauty. Expression of beauty. She knows how to make things beautiful. So a woman asks the question, and which woman a Roman woman? Because Rome is the legacy of Greece. Greece is that the vessel must be beautiful, beautiful content. It must be like that. That's how she grasps the world. It's not an accidental question. It's an expression of who she is. She's a woman who expresses beauty in the world. And she's a, she's a child of Greece. Which means that... Yeah. So Yeshua said to her, He said to her, What does your father keep his wine in? So she said, Like everyone, He, cre- he keeps the wine in, in, in clay amphora. You know, the Greek... The clay vessels in the cellar. So he said, surely for a king like your father, wine, cheese wine should be in gold and silver vessels. So she went home and she had her father's wine all put into gold and silver vessels. You know, when you put wine into metal, the alcohol leaches out the metal and it goes sour. And all the wine went off. So when they tasted the wine, she said, he, so the girl said, the Jew told me. So the Caesar, or the governor, whoever he was at the time, it was Caesar, or he was the governor of the... Middle East, he called in Rabbi Shemin Khanani and he said to him, what's going on? Rabbi said, I only told your daughter. All I did was tell your daughter what she... I just returned to her what she said to me. I tried to show her that when the vessel achieves importance, it ruins the contents. That when the vessel has something to say other than holding the contents, then it spoils the contents. She wasn't happy with that answer as it happens. She wasn't happy with that answer. No, this, she said, if you write about that, if your body is misshapen, you're beaten down so that its physicality is, is controlled and minimized, so that it contains inner beauty. What about your friends? Because they were Tanoi, they were, he had his associates, his contemporaries, there were those among them who were indescribably beautiful. Nebuchadnezzar. Even much later, Rabbi Yochanan, much later, who was an Amora, much, much lower generation. Rabbi Yochanan's beauty was incandescent, literally, luminescent. The Mosh says they used to put Rabbi Yochanan outside the mikveh. That women going home to their husbands on the way from the mikveh, they should see that, they should see that, that beauty, that spirituality in that vessel of beauty. So she said to him, how come some of your friends are so beautiful and so wise. And he said to the following words, he said, Ye have a son, ye have a Had they been ugly, they would have been greater spiritually. That means they managed to achieve their great wisdom despite their good looks. But that's the message. That is the Greek. That is the, that is Greek ideology. The body speaks of nothing more than animal. On the contrary, the Greeks went further. 
The uniqueness of our generation is to teach that the body is nothing more than an animal. The Greeks had a much more sophisticated approach. The Greeks said there is a world of spirit, but it serves the body. didn't deny the world of spirit, but they said it's subservient to the body. That means it's the body is the prime. This is what counts. If there is mind, if there is spirit, it is there to invest the physical with beauty. And the Jewish approach is that if there's physicality, it's there to be a vehicle for the spirit. That's exactly the difference between us. That is where the spiritual battle was pitched. And so what the Greeks did was they darkened the world. They came to teach that the spiritual world is not connected. Our generation, of course, has taken it to the extreme. That is no spirituality. Our generation grasps the human being not as a creature capable of intense beauty, of, of breathtaking beauty, who can create worlds of beauty and, 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 and put spirit into, into, into the most beautiful of vessels. Our world perceives the human as nothing more than animal. There's no generation in history of the world that's ever done that. There's been no generation in the history of the world until this generation whose ideology has been atheism. No matter how so-called primitive any culture has been, they've always... Yeah, all excavations of all cultures on earth, always unearth deep evidence of a belief in a world after this, of a connection to a spiritual and eternal world in one form or another. It's only this generation that teaches that there's nothing else. That, that, no matter how distant a Jew is, right, that's not part of the Jewish soul. You know... If you, don't, if you permit me just for a moment to bring this conversation down to a ridiculously coarse level. Why is it that of the four major thinkers of this century, right, or the last two centuries, the four major thinkers have affected the human mind far more deeply than, than, than anyone else? Right? Three were Jewish and one wasn't. They're remarkable, isn't it? Three of the, major, of the four major shifts, paradigm shifts, in the last two centuries, that changed the human mind radically. Not four of them. Is that right? <laughs> the founder of the most sweeping social and economic philosophy is a Jew. The founder of the most sweeping psychiatric, psychological paradigm, a Jew. The founder of the most sweeping and, and deep perception of reality as in space and time, a Jew. But only the fourth, the one who teaches that the human being is a gorilla, is not, why? 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 You know why? Because no Jew would say that. If a Jew thought that, he would deny it. Because Judaism is the elevation, no matter, no matter what is precious to a Jew, no, no matter what is profane to him, but that there's meaning that specific. When the Jew is an atheist, he's an ideological atheist. When the Jew becomes an atheist, he goes out to prove it to the world and he'll go to court for it. He may even be prepared to die for it. The difference between Jews and non-Jews in the world of ideology is that Jews take things seriously. When a Jew has an ideology, it doesn't matter what it is, it can be, a, it can be an ideology of existential meaninglessness. But it means a lot to him, he takes it seriously. <laughs> What you would come up with a theory that you're a meaningless, accidental chimpanzee? <laughs> but if you really accept that, then what else is there after that? Besides hanging around in the trees.
And what the Greeks did was they reduced the world of spirit to the world of the physical. That's what they did. They shrank it to those proportions. They disconnected it from its source. They stopped that light burning. They stopped that lamp drawing its oil. What were the two major facets of Greek philosophy that, that were the antithesis of Jewish philosophy? They taught that the world had no point of origin. They taught that the creator or the former of the universes, whom they existence, they did not deny. No one until this generation has denied that there, that there is such a point of origin. But he found primordial matter. That's what the Greeks taught. That the existence, that at least the primal matter of the world has always been. That's called kadmus oilam. The world has always been. What in physics they call a steady state theory. But in its ultimate sense, there always has been a world. He found it and he manipulated it and he shaped it and he formed it. And our teaching is that the world is formed from nothing. And the second great tenet or facet of Greek philosophy that opposes ours, Hashem is not concerned with the world anymore. He's not interested in the world. He's got bigger things to do. Yes, he created it, the famous watchmaker theory. He made the watch, crafted it beautifully, wound it up to let it run, and now it runs by itself. That's exactly what we hold to be, exactly what we hold to be untrue. That is the point of origin of all existence, of space and time, let alone the material within those. And that is attached to everything that happens in the world. That he cares about every detail. And that's why the Jewish response to that Greek philosophy was to battle it with our lives, because that is our life, is the attachment of this world to another. That's what our life is. And that's why they commemorated with the mitzvah of lighting a light. What could be more appropriate? Of showing the attachment hmm, of a physical medium that brings the light down. And of course they celebrated it as a mitzvah. Mitzvah means that we and he are one. The word mitzvah in Hebrew means being together. You know that? Its simple translation is commandment. But its deep translation, betzavtachada, means in one bond. Sevet in, in modern Hebrew means a crew, a team, elements that function as one. Mitzvah, right? Mitzvah is a very strange word in Hebrew, you know that? There's no word like that. It should be tzivui. Anyone who knows in the Hebrew knows that commandment should be tzivui. That means, not mitzvah, there's no... Needs discussion, but... And therefore, and therefore, the way they celebrated this victory was the new mitzvah, that means the Greeks taught that there's no togetherness, he's not concerned about what happens here. And the Jewish vi- victory really was the celebration of a new mitzvah, what came out of the Greek torment, was another mitzvah, right, another element that we ourselves create. This is the generation of the oral law, after all, where we ourselves become creators in this process. And therefore, in summary, what we begin seeing what we are, where we need to direct our consciousness on Hanukkah, is that in the depth of the winter, where the, the, where the light of day is as short as it can be, and the nights are as long as they can be, where the loneliness of the night manifests, and this turning point is the time in the winter when the days begin to become longer. These are the eight days the Medrash says that Adam, Adam thought the world was ending. He saw the days getting shorter and shorter and shorter as the winter approached. Right? And he began to mourn. He thought that the world would close in an permanent night. After all, the first, this was the first season of the world's history. Right? He, was, he was created Rosh Hashanah time, according to that opinion. And the days got shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. 
and he thought the days were closing out. And then says the Medrash, at the time when he saw the days get longer, when he reached the shortest day of the year, and then he saw the days get longer, he made a seven-day celebration. And that became the eight days of Hanukkah. You know where Hanukkah began? Was the original celebration, it begin with the Greeks. The source of Hanukkah, says the Medrash, is when Adam saw the first day in the darkness of winter that was longer than the day before, and he celebrated for seven days. This incidentally is the deep answer to the question, that's the, the most classic question of all in Hanukkah, is why we celebrated for eight days in the first place. After all, if there was oil for one day, and it burned for eight, only seven days are miraculous. You hear that question? That's the most classic. There's a famous book in Hebrew called Neir Lemea, which means a light to a hundred. That book contains a hundred answers to this question. Famous, the most classic question in all of Hanukkah. There was oil for one day. So the miracle was seven days. It burnt the first day, no miracle. But the source is here. I mean, in terms of tonight's discussion, I, I presume we all grasp together that the reason we celebrate eight days is because the one natural day is the substrate for the miraculous days. That's part of the miracle. In term, yeah, are we together? Despite all the other hundred answers, this is the one to remember. You can read the book too, but remember this one. <laughs> There were, of course, seven days that were miraculous. But the Jewish nature, is the, the essence of Judaism, is we count the natural day. We celebrate that together with the seven days of miracle. We're interested in eight. The seven that are miraculous elevate the natural to the miraculous too. They're not counted. And incidentally, 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 if there is a culture in the West... Let me speak very carefully here. But if there is a culture in the West, do you know what it is? What is the culture of the West? If there is one. What is the ideology of the West? What has Greece become in the West today? What is the central ideological core among the Western nations today? It's across the road. (coughs) That's what it is. It is that culture that also celebrates eight days. You know that? also celebrate eight days. It's two weeks away from us. They celebrate an eight-day period. You know that? It begins on the 25th of this secular month. And it continues through the first or second of the next. It's an eight-day period. You know where they got that from? This is the, this is, yeah, these were the eight days of Hanukkah. In fact, in their tradition, they celebrate on, the, yeah, on that day that they celebrate the birth of a certain individual. And eight days later, which is the end of their celebration, his circumcision. This is a deep tradition they have. And what is at the heart of their ideology? Is the separation of the physical and the spiritual. That's why their symbol is two worlds that have no intersection. They have no no commonality. Do you know what a Magadovid means? There's a deep source to it. Do you know what it means? It means the bringing down of spirituality into into oneness it's a manifestation here, and it's the return of the same thing to the higher world. These two in mesh, they're the six, you have to understand, the six facets of reality that mesh into the seventh, which is their unity. But their world grasps a distinction between these, that the two cannot meet, that if you want to be spiritual, you have to become completely spiritualized, you have to leave the body behind. There's no way to become spiritual. Engaging the body is intrinsically sinful and problematic. To become spiritual, you need to elevate yourself beyond the body entirely. Become a celibate or a monk or a nun. Leave the world. The body draws down to sin. 
And our teaching is that the body elevates to a mitzvah. The more degraded potential the body has, the more degrading and degraded, the higher the possibility of its use. That's exactly what we are. That's where, that's where our battle is pitched. Our battle is pitched at the level of a materialism that is devoid of spirituality. If there is a spirit, it's enlisted in the service of the physical. It's in a culture that teaches that to the extent of a total dissipation of, of the oneness of consciousness, all dissipated into complete externality so that there's no one left to be conscious. It's a culture that banishes the night because the night is that sensation of being alone. The only hope of reaching spirituality is to completely abjure, deny the physical, to transcend it completely and leave it. We, to, yeah, our view is the opposite on all of us. That's what Hanukkah is. Hanukkah is when the lights finally go out in the depth of winter and the prophetic message has left the world. Is Jews come along and they fight a battle that, that's worth our lives. It's a battle to reinstate the assertion that we, we are witnesses to something higher. That there was not devoid of that. It's not been separated from that. That's what our candle is. And that's no. That's the 250 aspects. That's exactly what it is. It's why Hassan and Kala, <coughs> bride and groom, moving towards the chuppah, we carry two candles. Two is or Why two? We'll also discuss another time. But in there, each one, each one is a completion here of two together. Each one is 250 elements, which is the 248 elements of the body and the two modes of connecting. The, the, two-channel way of connecting to the spiritual world. That's what it is. It's the names, the divine names, that bring down the, the source which is beyond all expression, bring them down into physical manifestation, bring the physical up. And therefore, what we, what we, what we want here, and what we want to try and re-establish in a world of tremendous darkness, in many ways much deeper than the Greek era, and unfortunately in many ways in the Jewish world even deeper, Jews who aren't negating spiritual teaching like they did then, but Jews who don't even know that there is anything to negate. Jews who've drunk in and absorbed a philosophy that teaches them that they are completely anim- that they're nothing more than animals. But the problem, the real problem is among us. That's where the real problem is. And therefore, when you light that small flame in your window you know, this coming week, on the one hand, it's a very small action, this small lighting of a flame, something that recalls an event in history. But in depth, that small flame is the rekindling of a neshama. It's a nefesh. Nerbtil shemen. That's your neshama that burns in that window. That's a statement that there was a miracle that occurred here. And, uh, and the consciousness has to be that there's a miracle that does occur. Not that it occurred once. But the same miracle is the miracle of connection of spirit to body, of ideology to human thinking, of our ability to transcend a culture that teaches all the opposite of those things. And that's where the battle is fought. And therefore the battle today is fought on your windowsill, in the space of your mind, between you and yourself. And it's that light that you get to use to dispel that immense darkness right, that we are lighting in the faith, and the hope, and the knowledge, that that light which burns now and consumes that which it burns will ultimately be a light that burns without consuming. All right.